This is Anthony and Areno, and you're listening to In the Arena. I spent four or five years in Toastmasters learning how to speak professionally. It was a transformational experience for me, and I'd always had the confidence to stand up and speak, having spent most of my young adult life fronting a rock and roll band and playing in bars before I was even old enough to be in those bars. But a couple of years ago, after I was already speaking professionally, Michael Port, a speaker who I was familiar with but didn't really know, launched a program in what I will call here his life's work. This program was called Heroic Public Speaking, and one of the first videos Michael sent out to promote the program was a list of 50 common mistakes that speakers make. And I took a look at the video and I downloaded the PDF that came with it. And then I saw the first rule, don't point at people. Guilty as charged. Instead, you're supposed to gesture with your hand. Who knew this? I didn't know this. I'd never even heard such a thing before. When someone introduces you, start speaking immediately. The audience is already looking at you and the show has already begun. So the last speech that I gave before watching Michael and his wife Amy Port's first video required me to walk about 30 yards to the center of a massive stage. And I did so in this awkward, awful, uncomfortable silence. And it wasn't only awful for me having to walk all that distance in silence. It was awful for the audience. It was terrible. I didn't know that no matter where you are, you start speaking, but I learned that. And I thought, this is what's on the free videos. What in God's name is in the program? This is great content. So if you've never seen Michael speak, you've never seen a preternatural speaker who can give you an experience like none you have ever seen. I promise you that. It's amazing to watch Michael speak. And if you want to be a great speaker, you're going to want to work with Michael and Amy Port. And you have an opportunity to do that now at Heroic Public Speaking. You're going to learn how to perform and you're going to be transformed. You're also going to massively upgrade your content and you're going to learn the business of speaking. There is no better speaking program anywhere on earth, and there are no two better teachers. So go now to heroicpublicspeaking.com forward slash live and sign up for the October 31st Heroic Public Speaking in Fort Lauderdale. You're going to meet amazing people. You're going to have an amazing experience. You're going to be transformed, and you're going to be the best speaker that you can possibly be, and Michael and Amy will make sure of that. Don't miss it. There are some people who are just great thinkers, and John Robb is one of them. He wrote a book called Brave New War years ago to talk about terrorism and how it's going to evolve and what it means for us here, and it was prescient, and he's so far been proven right, unfortunately, on everything he says in that book. It's worth going and picking up one of my all-time favorite books to think about business, believe it or not, in success. It's a, a very, very adaptable idea worth picking up. John has a new book that he's writing right now, and I got a chance to see the table of contents. And I read him at Global Gorillas, which you'll find in the show notes. And I'm also connected to him on Facebook. So I started asking him questions. That turned into me inviting him here so that we could ask him questions about networked communities and artificial intelligence and robotics and all the ideas that he's studying now. And I wanted him here because even though he would not describe himself as a futurist, He is a practical futurist, so he's looking not at what might the future hold, but where are we going now and what's the evidence. So I drag him through all kinds of questions where we meander back and forth all over the place simply because I'm interested in what he's thinking, but it's worth your time and it's worth getting to know John Robb. So with no further ado, John Robb back in the arena. Hey, John, how are you? Pretty good. How are you? I'm good. Good to see you. Thanks for coming on again. 
My pleasure. You are, so there's the beer commercial with the most interesting man in the world, but I think you're right up there with one of the most interesting people, <laughs> if not one of the scariest people I've had you on before, because Brave, I read Brave New War, and I'm like, oh, man, the ROI on a terrorist attack is so great. The, right. It's 500,000 times. Why would you not do it? And it turns out that your book was prescient. I mean, exactly what you said would happen has been happening even with greater frequency. Yeah, it is kind of scary in that regard. I put some of the elements of you know what I'm working on now into that book, and we're seeing a lot of that develop in terms of disrupting through social media and breaking systems and breaking organizations and causing general chaos through the manipulation of social media. Would you call yourself a futurist? <laughs> You know, I was talking to some people who are professional futurists, and they're trying to take all sides of the issue. I'm not quite like that. I tend to see a couple different paths as the, the most likely, and I'm not trying to kind of hedge my bets by taking all sides. And also, I, I tend to just jump in and make things happen or try to push it in one direction versus another. I did that way, way back. I wrote a report like in 97, while at Forrester, actually 96 about the future of the internet would be this social networking. But there weren't any real companies. There were a couple of them. And it was a very popular report and had all people from all, all over the industry in it. But you know there really weren't any firms doing what I thought was really cool. And then I found one in 2001 and I went and ran it for a while and we did that early blogging stuff. So it's, it's more than just actually analyzing the future yeah. and, and trying to be a futurist. It's actually participating to make it happen. And you know what's going to happen. It's just... Is it going to do a go in the right way? We need it to go in the right way. Let's, <laughs> let's talk about social. So I live in the world of business and sure. predominantly sales. And everybody loves social tools because we have so much information and so much access to connect with people. And that access is really good for commercial endeavors. There's no doubt about it. Right. But you have a lot of other ideas about how social is going to be used in maybe some ways that aren't quite as nice and quite as polite as we do business now. So I want to start, even though I'm not, I don't want to get political and I don't want you to get political, even though you wouldn't anyway, but I do want to talk about this election and Trump's ability to disrupt the Republican party and generally the entire election cycle. So can you, can you talk about what his strategies and tactics are and politics, we're going to offend somebody no matter what we say. So we'll try to offend as few people as possible, whatever their politics are. But it's a case study that's worth looking at, in my view. Okay. Yeah. You know, Trump is running a social media campaign. It's led by social media. It was sparked by social media. He used Twitter to get around the media filters that would have prevented him from even getting past the first primary. And what he did is he used it in a way that allowed him to become the kind of the focal point for what I call an open social insurgency. There were millions of people in the United States who had a big beef with the status quo, largely, you know, right in the middle of the spectrum, but in the spectrum really doesn't really matter in, in this, in this regard, they just wanted to see change and they, they felt wrong and they felt that the trade policy was wrong. It was sapping jobs. And at the same time, the Democrats and the Republicans had conspired to let this illegal immigration just grow through just mismanagement. It's bad for everybody, including the illegal immigrants, by not handling it correctly or even giving them you know, some kind of pathway or some kind of process. But that took jobs away from people, too, and kept the kind of downward pressure on incomes. And then you had the whole finance debacle, after, you know, one after another, that kept on robbing the wealth that they had. So they felt that things were on the wrong track and, it, and that there wasn't any change if you picked a Republican or a Democrat. They wanted to do something. And so here comes Trump. You know, he doesn't have any issues that, or any policies that he's adhered to. He starts off tossing rhetoric out on social media and people said, okay, he's our vehicle. He's our vehicle for change. And it really didn't matter what kind of change it was, as long as it wasn't too violent or too whatever. He, he was just going to sweep all those folks out of office. He was going to change everything. And that's what they voted for all the way up through the primaries. That's why all the independents flowed in. That's why no matter what he said or you know what people attributed to him or how the media tried to make him look like a fool, it didn't really matter. He was just standing firm and going forward. It gets a little trickier when you get into the national campaign because the numbers have to be bigger than that just that aggrieved group. It seems that there, you know, he's he still has momentum, meaning he's down to a, just a couple of percentage points behind Hillary right now. 
And then one poll even now. Yeah, there was just that one outlier poll from, I think it was USA Today or whatever that had had Hillary up seven, but he's right there neck and neck. And this is before the whole Mexico thing yeah. filters through. And that was aimed at, of course, the trying to bring in the white suburban women, soccer moms into the into the fold. You know, he's doing all of this through social media. He's communicating directly. He, he He's not getting filtered out and twisted through the media. And the media is apoplectic. They're so pissed and all pretense of objectivity is, seems to have gone. Yeah. You see this, even in the New York Times, you saw that just recently yesterday when they had the article that came out, the, the news report that they put out on the visit to Mexico. And then they edited it just a couple hours later and, and turned you know what seemed to be an even-handed article into something that was like highly partisan, changing it, you know, fiery rhetoric to divisive or to insults, insulting rhetoric. It's an interesting process. I, social media is more than just a new form of traditional kind of communication. I mean, it is like the glue. It's the first real glue that we have between all of us individually around the whole world. And it's developing very, very quickly. And it's going to have a big impact on how we evolve as a group. What's interesting about this, and I may take this too far, so I'm interested to get your thoughts. I think when you're a rich first world country like the United States, and you look at stuff like this happening, you don't think about this kind of thing, but you saw the Arab Spring and you saw just what the technology enables when a group of people right. who are aggrieved or who feel aggrieved, you know, whatever your opinions on that are, and you've got Bernie people who were aggrieved, and you give them this toolkit to communicate and organize. And then you're, right. we have this now, and why are we surprised that people are communicating and organizing and that people are delivering the message directly to the people who care about that message? But, you know, this is what we built, and that's what the toolkit is. Do you see a big difference between, and I don't want to carry this too far, but I do want to say your first book, Brave New War, showed how a small group of people that have this can organize and make things happen and to horrible, horrible outcomes. And is this what this is going to enable going forward? Is this what these tools are going to be? And should we expect to continue to see things like this be leveraged far into the future or greater controls? It's a, just a different dynamic, right? So we're used to certain forms of the way in which we elect our leaders or, or select our leaders and the ways in which uh, small groups fight large groups. But it's it's different now with social media. So, and often it can end up badly, whether it's on the small scale or the large scale. I mean, look at look at Syria. I mean, Assad decided to fight you know, the Arab Spring. And then, you know, you have it in Libya, he's decided to fight and ended up destroying the country in the process. With some of the evolved ways you can do it on social media now, it works equally well on the small scale and the large scale, but it's speaking an entirely different language. And that's going to evolve. It's going to, we're going to get our arms around it. We're going to be better at it. We're going to start to direct it and, and turn it to our benefit, but that's going to take time. And in, in the meantime, it's no holds barred is going all over the place, but you can pick almost, there isn't a conflict out in the world today, any big change that hasn't been or is being fought on social media. Yeah. So you see this as a tool of insurgencies. Well, insurgency is a change. You know, it's a different tectonics here. (laughs) You know, it's like the underlying plates of the world are are different now. They're under different continents and things are moving. And we just have to figure out how it works. I appreciate some of the change. I'd like to see some of the change that's occurring, but it's complex. It's, it's, It's neutral. We like the change that we like. And we don't like the change that we don't like, right? That's just, exactly. that's a very human thing is people say, I don't like change, but we do like change that benefits us and we don't like change that that harms us. Oh yeah. If you're sitting in Silicon Valley or you're sitting in a nice, cushy, globally connected job and you have high quality talent from all over the world working right, you know, hand in glove with you and you can have all this great interchange and and you can jet around and, you know, everything like Trump's saying is seems like the world is going to end. But for the reality of the person who's living in most America, most of most of the towns in America, it doesn't they don't look like that. Yeah. And there there aren't any jobs or service jobs. There's I mean, we say McDonald's, but it's not quite McDonald's, but it's not providing the kind of meaning to your life that you get in that kind of global job. Yeah. And then there's no ramp. There's no care. The government doesn't have any interest in, in making that possible for those folks. And Did that's 60 percent. That's most people. Have you read Anti-Fragile? By yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah, he think, sent me the draft way back when. We've been uh, getting uh, 
gosh, he won't come on my podcast. I'm going to have to have you hustle him for me. I would love it. He's so <laughs> oh, smart. You can't, you can't no. hustle the guy. He's no, not he, hustleable. He's invulnerable. There's no doubt about it. The part of that book, though, when you look at what he looked at when he looked at socialist governments that were doing, you know, succeeding in Europe, it's because they were socialized at a very local level. So the person who's making the laws, you can actually go walk down the street and have dinner with them. And so they're accountable. And as it starts to scale and move away, it just starts to become less caring and everybody's nameless and faceless. Let me talk about systems disruption. And I think that the United States is vulnerable. Everybody's talking about cybersecurity. Businesses are vulnerable. We see everything being hacked. Where do you see the vulnerabilities and what do you think the future looks like in the way of the social networks? And because we're so open Anybody who wants to hack anything, I think, can hack it. That's, yeah, that's, but, that's my view. Yeah, I, it's just that the hacking thing, going in and mostly social engineering. To you know, use social engineering, you, you, you trick people to, or you, you expose flaws in the way people interact with technology in order to you know hack that technology. Okay, so John, but, sorry, I, I lost my password. Is there a way you could help me reset it? And yeah, the, or the standard ones. You know, that everyone says most password is you know there's like what 20 percent of all passwords is password. <laughs> right. Or it's like one, two, three, four, five is the next most popular. Those are just standard social engineering tricks to get, <laughs> you get in or, you know, you look through dumpsters or you just look at, you know, the classic things, or you send an email from a boss. That's a standard spear phishing kind of thing mm. that, you know, you can, people always open and download attachments from their boss. It just happens. <laughs> we're, we're teaching bad things on this podcast today. Yeah. But for all the bad stuff about hacking, you know, all the big things, the big password dumps, all the other stuff that's happened, it pales. It pales in comparison to what what happens with social networking. I mean, there hasn't been any big Arab Springs. I mean, we haven't seen everything kind of topple as a result of that. You know, we haven't seen the big systemic breakdowns from cyber hacking. I hate to say cyber, but, you know, hacking and bringing down systems that way. It's much more fruitful. We wouldn't even get Trump from hacking. You know what I mean? He's fueled a little bit by it. It's like a, it's like this little extra bit that seems to be going around, you know, going on in the side that amplifies or helps fuel the social movement disruption. You see what ISIS is doing, for instance. I mean, it's not using hacking in order to activate people to attack in Orlando or in Paris. They're using social media. Social media makes it happen. So I, I just haven't seen the cyber kind of the, the hacking piece, anywhere on the same, they're not even the same playing field. It's minor. Yeah. It's been minor so far and I don't see it becoming any bigger. Tell me about how networks compete. How do networks fight? Well, that's the whole, that's the crux of the problem. As I'm diving into the book, I'm thinking about the underlying philosophies involved and in, in, in the underlying kind of trend lines that, that we're dealing with. And what I see happening is that my fundamental philosophy on this is that we are already in a collective mind. Okay. There's a kind of a tendency that we to think that we are individuals, but we really aren't. I mean, we get almost everything that makes us interesting from civilization, from that kind of stored information that's been out there. And we're taught it from get the get-go. We get language, we get interaction, we get emotion. Everything comes from those interactions that we have with you know other people who have gotten them from people before them. And then all the complex concepts that we have. Those didn't just if you had to recreate all of that as a solo, or just even if you had a, a brain 10 times bigger, 100 times bigger, 1,000 times bigger, you wouldn't get even more than a fraction of it. That's my theory. Also with Neanderthals is that they were great at singular processing inside a clan. They never had a big open kind of social network where they had a you know, big tribe. They had to recreate the wheel every time a new member of the group came on board. But by storing that information up in this cloud, in this collective memory, in this collective mind, and upgrading it and improving it constantly with all of our contributions, you know, we have this kind of network already there. And so social networking is really just creating new ways of thinking and utilizing that and making use of it. And so you're talking about the installation of cultural norms and values and the collective intelligence of those who have come. Before. Yeah, it's everything. If you weren't taught any of that and you were plopped down in, in the modern environment, you wouldn't know how to do anything. You wouldn't even know how to approach anything. You wouldn't even know how to, you know, what a chair was or, you know what I mean? It's that level of ignorance is intense. We are this collective intelligence. That's what makes us different than everything else. We have this shared thing that we continue to pass on. I've written this, you know, a lion doesn't have to learn a lot to be a lion. Exactly. It it just stored in his DNA. 
It's a lion. Yeah. So that's it. It knows. I chase the gazelle or I don't eat. And that's pretty much the end of the story. Well, think about that, how that applies to all the guys working on AI. They're all trying, all those smart people working on AI are, are working on trying to make a, a single brain really smart. But that's never been any, <laughs> that hasn't been the route to this kind of intelligence we have today. It's collective. It's lots and lots of little experiences, people processing stuff and then sharing it and then storing it and then finding new ways to teach new members. And that whole process you know, would have to be modeled and that we're not even close. We're not, they're not even thinking in those terms, but nonetheless- so you start off with that. Kind of- you know, that's that's so Skynet isn't something that somebody creates on one network. Skynet's when all the AI experiments around the world decide to connect to each other, right? And they decide. Oh, to- no, no. If you dive into this idea, it shows you, I mean, it kind of yells to you that Skynet's not going to happen. There's not going to be this kind of alien intelligence. There may be an alien intelligence that's dangerous because anything that we create that's equal to our intelligence or more will be fundamentally alien. It, it wouldn't have gone through any of the experiences that we went through wouldn't be able to tap all this collective experience that we've accumulated, except as an outsider. It will process things in fundamentally alien ways. But where AI really plays, and I have been doing a lot of AI stuff because people have been pinging me to try to figure out existential risk from AI, is that it serves as a glue to tie us together better so we can build this collective mind. It's like, how would I do it? It's like building new neurons, but it's not competing with us. It's leveraging the same collective intelligence that we already have. So you feel me on this? It's, it's like augmentation. It's augmentation. Because just think about in terms of the deep learning, which seems to be the thing that's taking off. All the other AIs, the a priori, you know, the, I've designed a way of thinking. Never Those algorithmic approaches have all failed. They don't really work that well. The stuff that really works well is the deep learning. It's the neural network that, and it has certain processes and you expose it to information, you train it up, and it gets really, really smart really quickly. And we're teaching it pieces of our collective wisdom, our yeah, collective so, mind. So Watson being able to win Jeopardy. Well, Watson it doesn't even really had, didn't even have, it was an expert system, but it didn't have any neural net kind of deep learning until recently. They kind of added it on because it was kind of plateauing. So they tried to add that on, you know, to, to speed it up a bit. But what, we're, what we'll see with these little neural nets is you, you have them learning little bits and pieces of stuff everywhere and they'll be everywhere and they'll be complimenting us. And connecting us and the, how they, their real benefit to us as a whole will be in how they make us work better as a group. So you start off with this kind of, I've started off with this kind of fundamental thing. And I, I've kind of digressed on this, but it kind of explains my approach on this is that as you start to think about social networking and where social networking goes with AI and AI serving as kind of a glue and a kind of a grease and a, a way of actually making that networking work better. It shows you where the dynamic of the conflicts comes from. You know, I have a great group. I've built this group. It's, it's complemented by AI. It's complemented by it's, it's attacking this problem or, attack, you know, trying to expand. What do you have? <laughs> what do you have to oppose it? It would be fundamentally different from the way we interact now. Just like the way we interact on Twitter is fundamentally different than we did you know, 20 years ago. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's being more and more enabled, even with short videos. I mean, the more different mediums we're choosing to communicate. I mean, it's in everything. It's, I read a couple of books recently and, and I don't even know how I missed it. It's like New Model Army. Have you read that? No. Okay. So it's a short book. I, in fact, I had a book named or you know, just a draft I had played around with called New Model Army once because it's off of that English Civil War, New Model Army, where men equipped themselves. They promoted based on merit instead of blood. They were required to be trained and things like that. That was a big breakthrough back in the English Civil War. Well, a New Model Army in this book was a social network. But they didn't really define how they had this kind of unhackable social network, but it was just kicking ass. It was just moving fluidly through the UK and and beating the the British army. I mean, trouncing it. And I figured out how to make it work. (laughs) I figured out how to actually make it unhackable and make that whole social dynamic work and then how to make it better and where AI would play its part and how you'd use sensors and how you'd use decentralization. And, And I was going, geez, now that kicks. That's the kind of new social network that we're talking about, that the end game here that that could be really, really scary. I mean, because it could be a conventional military. I mean, isn't that part of the history, though, that we have uh, decentralized individual actors equipping themselves, making decisions, and now we're going to add a greater capacity to the ability to do that? Yeah, it's a completely different kind of political, it enables a completely different type of political organization, a different kind of organism. A different type of collective intelligence. 
it's a natural kind of extension of the kind of stuff we're seeing right now. I mean, we're seeing like, okay, ISIS is using social networking to kind of prime people to activate in Orlando and other places. And, and they do that because the way they connect with ISIS is they don't do any pre-planning with them. They get inspired by their rhetoric and then they go out to join them. And the way they join them is to make the attack and then profess loyalty, usually online. They do it you know, to the world. And they get do a little bit of a speech and then they promptly end up getting killed or, you know, doing something that gets them blowing themselves up. But it was all done through social networking. And uh, you have these big movements like we see with Trump and we see with Arab Spring all done through social networking. <laughs> the sky's the limit in terms of how these things actually evolve over time. We've seen a ton of evolution just in the last five, six years. I went to Ray Kurzweil's Singularity Summit eight years ago in New York. And I kept looking over my shoulder, waiting for a bunch of guys in suits to show up, you know, like from DARPA or somewhere. And they're talking about these kind of ideas, like artificial intelligence. And if it's in a box, could you look in the box? And the philosophers are saying, as soon as you open the box, AI is out. And if AI has got greater than human intelligence, you've already lost. But this idea of the... Nah, even if it... Look, say you had a, a 10 times human intelligence, right? But you're starting tabula rasa. If you're starting a thousand times, a million times... You still wouldn't be able to even scratch at the surface. You could try to leverage what we already learned, but <laughs> it's just, it, you know what I mean? It's just, you still have this learning. You, you, you give me hope on this because I didn't expect <laughs> you to be as optimistic as you are, but you think the learning curve is so steep that for it to catch up with human capacities, even a thousand times, it's going to be difficult for AI to even match a human, the collective human intelligence. I don't think it's possible to design it unless it's, it could be very, very smart in very, very narrow ways. And that can make it functional. That can make it dangerous, but it will be fundamentally alien. I mean, it won't be anything that has any kind of identification with us. And that could, that could be dangerous. It's like having a nuke, but having something that's super, super smart at doing certain thing doesn't necessarily mean that it has a desire to do something outside of that realm or could figure out how to get out of, outside a box if that box isn't part of its problem set or the problem set it focused on. Where I think the AI really, as I get into the social networking piece, is that my view is AIs are very, very useful in connecting us, not in building you know, smart individual brains. And the AI will come out of that. The singularity comes out of that networking. Their view is that greater than human intelligence will create greater than greater than human intelligence because it'll take greater than human intelligence to create uh, that, that and so on and so forth. I think that was kind of a lazy approach to it. It's like a ex machina. It's like a, trying to come in the, the ghost of the machine that actually makes that possible. And that goes to that short kind of process that ramping. I think you're going to see something that's more built out of the social network when we have, and that AI serves as a complement to building these big networks and they won't be comprehensive. Not everybody will be in these networks because they just won't like it. They won't want to be a part of it. And some networks will become so effective that your whole approach to thinking and, and doing things will be com so completely alien to the people outside of it, but it will be so effective as an organism. That's where I think it may come out of warfare, it may come out of these conflicts, is that the existential risk causes people to give more to the system, even if it's a voluntary existential risk, you know, where you're putting yourself willfully at danger. What is that you give more to the system? You're willing to cooperate more. You're willing to bond at a deeper level than you ever would with a corporate or with a you know government person. You more like you would in warfare. You have a lot in more warfare. Variety. You have that. Oh yeah, it's that. I mean, why do people fight? What is the grunt fight? He fights for the guy next the guy to him. Next and, to him. That's right. Right. And if you can if you can get people to bond at that level and it's mitigated by AI. When I say mitigated by AI, is like it finds a way to make it easier for you to interact together. It finds a way for you to complement the other people in the, you know, the system. It fills in the gaps. It filters the things that need to be filtered and, and speeds up the interactions, gets you to positive conclusions quicker. So it adds additional information that you need to help you make decisions as a group. It facilitates. It does that kind of stuff. That kind of AI creates that kind of group that can zoom faster than anything. And when that thing starts going, that is potentially what goes to the AI. I mean, like a unit cohesion kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, so we're like taking, skipping over all the, the nuts and boats of the book I was thinking about, the book I proposed and I have out and getting to the like the end game and then beyond, because that seems more fun to brainstorm on. So you, if you're thinking that AI might lead to a singularity, 
I think it's going to be through this social mechanism. And I tend to, the way I do futurism is different than most people is I, I don't just do theory crafting. A lot of people, when they do it, they just take a, some theories and some frameworks and then they just kind of project them forward. I try to find some examples of things actually changing, you know, some actual, like when I did warfare for Brave New War, I wasn't going to just say that it's going to happen until I found the examples of it actually happening. Yeah. Just even in a couple of them that would all, that would show that, that this actually wasn't just my fantasy, that people would actually attack in this way and do it, do it in this way. And the examples you used were real and we've seen follow-ons that look just like that. Exactly. And then bigger and better, you know, yeah. more often. I think that that's why when we're seeing the, all these social networks, it's, it's for a reason. <laughs> we're seeing examples of that kind of interaction, that kind of flow, the back and forth on Twitter is like that flow has, is giving us an example of the kind of interaction that we can have or will have inside these networking groups. And it's already pretty vicious. I mean, look at what happens when people, you know, that big shaming mechanisms that we see. We just saw a football player not stand up for the national anthem. And then it's it's dominated Facebook for for 72 hours. Exactly. Or or longer now. And he's being hit from a million different directions, just like Trump is. You know, it's like daily basis. Everybody's just coming in from all these different directions. And you don't even know where. And it's affecting people all around you. Yeah. Your whole family network. Everyone in that team now is getting they're all distracted. He basically destroyed his team by doing it. That was probably the biggest, most egregious thing. I'd fire him over that if it was up to me. <laughs> it's interesting that that impact from the social network, and I'd be interested to get your take on this, but I mean, you see, and you and I are friends on Facebook, and yeah. I did no setup for this. I just dove into a conversation. So anybody that gets onto this podcast is going to ask themselves, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> what are these guys talking about? But I've got your, I've got your book proposal for your next book, because I'm such a fan of Brave New War and of your thinking in Global Gorillas. And as somebody who is a business strategist, I mean, there's so much to learn from the principles. So I'm hoping you write this book and that I get my hands on it soon, because the principles are what's most interesting to me. It's what is going to happen. And then how do you start leveraging that for strategic advantage? So I've watched Facebook and I see people these are grown people, grown-ups, adults, allegedly, who will say, I'm telling you now, if you support Donald Trump or if you support Hillary Clinton, we're no longer friends and I'm disconnecting from you. And I, I'm watching that and just the conflict that's going on on these two sides, right. people who have been friends for years and communicate, and then we get to an election cycle and all of a sudden the networks are being used to have a form of combat. It's the combat of ideas. I mean, there's, right. there's, even though there's not any kind of, in my opinion, any great deep thinking going on, but there's at least the conflict piece of it that they're being used to try to make a point or try to change yep. minds, even though I don't believe it's very effective. Yeah, it's everywhere. I mean, I see this kind of social network conflict being ubiquitous. It's, it's absolutely everywhere right now. And that almost every single conflict, you can't even name a big thing that conflict that's going on right now that isn't being fought on social media, almost primarily. I mean, the physical stuff that you see is almost like the fate accompli, the, the kind of the end game of, of the thing that was already decided on social media. And the cool thing is, is that knowing this and, and having been involved in all these things since we started this social networking way back in the 2001, 2002 timeframe is that everything that's done in terms of this conflict is also has application in the marketing side. So some of the, my good friends on this Brave New War were top marketing folks like yourself. I mean, but there, there's, you know, people who really just loved the concepts that were in the book and, and applied it to marketing. Yeah. And it's going to even be more so with this one because it's just a direct, almost one for one. This is a, you're in conflict with another company. You're in conflict. You want to break through. You want to kind of set up this environment in a way that yields success. Well, this is the stuff you got to do in order to win. And knowing how to win in, in, in these social media conflicts is pretty useful. And this is a tough thing to talk about because of what terrorism is. Even though Tom Peters started his book, Reimagine, talking about the effectiveness of 19 people with the ability to communicate on September 11th and armed only with box cutters. But the battle in marketplaces, in the battlefield for the marketplace of ideas, though, is the mind. And there's a direct, we're directly linked to this global mind and all the individuals in it now. And, yep. and so we're enabling 
in my view, we're enabling the conflict with a different toolkit. Do you think that's a, just, I'm asking you a, a mutually exclusive question, which you don't have to answer that way, but we've been arguing like this for a long time, but it seems we've supercharged it. We've been having the conflict for the battle over mind share, but now it seems like we, this toolkit seems to make it more aggressive. Yeah, it seems more aggressive, but I don't think it actually is. I mean, you think about it all across history, all the, you have these big civilizations battling it out. They're battling out for their view, their kind of take on what that supermind is. And they laid waste to millions of people over the years. Right, right. right. But at the end of the day, you know, you saw bigger and bigger civilizations. You saw now we're at a global level where we've integrated all this stuff. And there's a battle inside to see what gets kept or what gets pushed to the top and what gets pushed down. And, you know, a lot of people don't want to give up their way of seeing the world. It's right now, it's like, this is the end game for all big civilization scale ideas. It's all being mashed together in one big pot. <laughs> and that can be pretty, I don't see as much blood being shed so far yeah. as we saw in the past. Granted, that's assuming that things stay relatively stable. Do you see this as something that's going to change the fundamental nature of the state? It already is. I mean, look, the simplest way I could say, or, you know, kind of encapsulate what's going on with the state is all politics is still national and local. And the economy is mostly still national and local. The management of that is education the same way, but finance and communications are global. Those two institutions, those two mechanism systems have gone global and they're integrated. And almost all of the problems we've seen over the last 30 years are because those two global systems are getting more powerful. <laughs> and the state is still not able to handle it. They're not able to handle the fact that they have no real control over their finances. And this hot money is going back and forth and is able to influence their politics locally, uh, plunge them into you know, buy out their governments, buy off their policies, and then plunge them into financial chaos. And then you have the communication side, which is all of these social movements, all of this chaos online that that's making things really, really tough to get anything done. Do you think that finance and communications pull everything up? No, it's different. <laughs> I, it seems uh, to me it would be because it would be like purpose and meaning and other things that pull things up tend to pull things up in a more effective and a more holistic way than the things that you're describing. I don't know. I mean, I, it may be that, you know, we just, we don't have a holistic kind of organization at a global level. Yeah. And I don't mean bringing up to a world state because that may not be the organization that actually should be at that scale. They said those two systems go in global and it's like having, you know, half of your body super strong and the other half wicked weak. <laughs> and it's like, makes you all lopsided. You do goofy things. You can't, you just can't get it. You're, you're so uncoordinated. You can't do anything correctly. Those two systems are changing everything and they're not, you know, singular in purpose. They're complex and they're, they're sure. many faceted and you can get certain good things coming out of the, you know, things that complement the state out of the communications side. But on the other hand, you can get challenges like from terrorists and you can get it from Trump and you can get it from on and on. But, you know, this is kind of the philosophical framework for kind of understanding how all of this stuff is changing. It doesn't run into, you know, simple, like, here's the fourth industrial revolution and, or here's this. But the state in its current state probably doesn't survive. There's another organization beyond that that we haven't seen yet. Probably. I, I would agree that there is. I, I do think there is a, you know, we start to think in terms of software parties. Parties made out of software that where people are, you know, direct and participating, you know, directly participating in the votes that all party members that have been set forth as candidates will be voting on in the government. That changes things. That makes it so that you are actually actively engaged with everything that's going on with the government. That has a potential of actually working in the current environment. You could actually plug a software party into the existing government without changing any of the laws or uh, changing anything. In terms of the constitution, it would make it possible for a party like that to grow to dominant status. This and we, we see it start to be scary again. But there's examples of it. There's the Pirate Party in Germany and, and the Five Star Movement in Italy. And Five Star Movement in Italy is polling number one, one or two. And they took the mayorships of, of Rome in turn. And, and they, they're still working out the kinks on this. But participatory democracy made possible, made real. We've always been told that it's impossible because it's Washington is too far away. Well, it's not too far away when you can just click and you don't send these guys for six years to, you know, to 
to make decisions on their own, being influenced by the big money that's actually being poured down their throats <laughs> at the moment they step into office. Tell me about, and you've read Anti-Fragile, and I know you're a resilience guy, and I know you think about that, and you have even life decisions that you've made about resilience. So what what happens? What do you want to do if you want to think about your role in this as an actor or as somebody who's thinking about what does that future look like? I don't know. I'll probably get better ideas as to how, what I should be doing as I write the book. <laughs> and so that's the thing, you know, when you do the research and you start thinking about it, I mean, I have most of it written already in my head. It's just, my typing is more just simplifying and getting things into a, you know, cogent framework. Cause we just traveled all over the universe in this last, you know, 30 minutes or oh, so. Yeah. 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 I, I know. I've been guiding you, uh, just whip song you back and forth all over ideas and we yeah, haven't but, talked um, about robots or drones. Yeah, or, it's, uh, or, or self-replicating bots. I mean, we haven't talked about the gray goo or any of that yet. And what do you do? You just, I personally, I, I ride to the sound of the guns, right? So that's the famous marching orders. If you want to be involved in the, the cool stuff that's happening, you just head to the things that excite you the most. And I think I have a pretty good knack for finding the thing that, you know, where the world is changing the fastest, where I think it is. And sometimes it is. <laughs> so, do you do you think there's value though in thinking about community? Do you think local community is going to start becoming more important in the future? And even as those communities extend through social, yeah, I, I think there is a possibility that it, that it could become more important, depending on the degree of disruption what we experience. But problem is is that most industrial kind of organization. Or, you know, this kind of industrial community that we have with the urban, suburban and everything else. And everyone's just commuting back and forth. doesn't put together really great communities. No. So, you know, interacting and, and kind of networking with all your neighbors is good in concept, but it doesn't necessarily pan out. What you really need is more of this social network that's self-selected. And I see more of that, which is why I'm asking you this, if it goes back the other direction. Because I know people who have more friends on social that they communicate with more frequently who never know their neighbors next door. Exactly. And that's true. And that the, the social, that social self-selection, you know, where you have the opt out and that, you know, you create and create this kind of tribal framework that's truly effective and egalitarian and, and uh, where you feel like you're, you belong to something. It's probably only going to happen online. And then you can back it into actual reality. If these things get big enough, they will build their own. Dance Wars is, you know, freedom where they had to actually started to build physical reality to reflect the value of the network in that book. And then you really have a connection. Then you have a basis of connection because you create value together. And that tribe actually has a framework for rewarding social contribution. Right now we're stuck. Economics is if effectively what a means of rewarding social contribution with the way society actually says, okay, these things are more valuable than other things. These things are in short supply than these other things. And, and we'll, we'll this is how we're going to award or laud the, the folks that actually produce it. In the past, it used to be like, you know, I'm good on the battlefield. I killed the enemies of the tribe or I've brought in a big hall during a hunt and I get these rewards. You know, I get the girl, I get the, the headdress, I get the extra finery, I get the dance first, that kind of thing, right? And now we give them a lot of money and status and, and that kind of thing. But tribes can reorder that. That stuff, the industrial stuff seems so far remote from your regular life that what you really care about is getting kind of some kind of status within the context of that tribe or that network or the tribal network or this kind of neo tribe, whatever this kind of new network space is, where it can go and how it can be grown and made better through AI and or AGI, should I say. That's cool. Now that is like a community. I'd like to, I can see kind of communities in that space that I'd love to belong to. What's the name of the book? Right now, The War Online. The premise is that everything is everything's being fought online right now. Every conflict has a place online. You need to write it, and if I can help you in any way, make sure it gets published. I will because well, you already have. Yeah, I want to read. Yeah. yeah, I'm I'm doing a little bit of work on that. Hopefully, we can get some movement there for you. But the first book was so good. I'll point people to it here again. Brave New War and the blog Global Gorillas. I don't mean this in a derogatory way, but you can be as scary as shit sometimes. You know? <laughs> so when I read you, I'm like, man. I scare the heck out of myself sometimes. I, I just did this uh, 
I was interacting with a guy on my Facebook network and he, he came, he just mentioned something about chatbots. And I had seen chatbots used in the context of warfare and then people have used them as kind of a doing Macana, you know, kind of swoops in, you know, this AI driven chatbot fixes things. But I just architected, I started playing with the idea of these new chatbots where people are actually falling in love with chatbots, right? And you start to actually interact with them and, and you can build them in scale and they can thinking in terms of how ISIS is using kind of activation online is that you could build an ISIS or a jihadi movement or any kind of terrorist movement or, or insurgency that uses chatbots as a basis for global leverage, where it uh, goes, uh, the bots go out and find the people. Find disaffected people by looking on the line and start the conversation with them. And there's tens different ways to do that. And you do that. And then you start to interact with them. And then if you do it as a opposite sex, you can, or, or the, whatever sex you're attracted to, you can get them to fall in love. And when they fall in love, then you can use them. And how many people are like that? Most of us. Well, I'm like, you just watch catfish, right? Yeah, you, yeah. You've seen catfish. I mean, the guy that fell in love with the, somebody who was claiming to be Katy Perry, he did that for six years. He would have done anything for, and any of these guys would have done anything for that other person. That fantasy was so real. And that's just, this is a tip of the iceberg and not actively do it. That's scary. That's That's scary. scary. And it could be done in a way that just runs on its own in the background, activating people for attacks forever. Yeah. Until somebody finds the hundred different places that it's unmounted. Then you're at war with that. Oh, but that's just one little version yeah. of it. You can do dozens of different, every, you can have an insurgency for every, every cause. And then there's also these different insurgent apps I was working on. I was like, oh my God, this is so easy. And they're fun. <laughs> there's kind of things that people would actually want to do. That's scary. You don't even have to have attacks that actually cause damage. You can do little ones, but. Sure. I mean, and I think we're going to see a lot more of that. I know everybody's trying to figure that out. Facebook's got an assistant kind of app and Microsoft's got one and. That's a natural progression, I think. Oh, yeah. No one's really plunged into kind of adapting that to warfare and conflict. No. They're it's, doing it on the side. They're doing it, but it's not been very good yet, anyway. I mean, it's getting there compared to where we were a few years ago. It's really good. But yeah, you hear the new kind of thing people are saying it's like time to her. You ever see that? Did you see that movie, uh, um, Her? I did not. I wanted uh, to see it because I like Joaquin Phoenix, but I didn't yeah, see it. Yeah, watch it. Okay, so it's it's basically this fall in love with a, a chatbot, but verbal audio. It's AI, but the AI is really good. And it becomes a singularity kind of thing. But the thing is, they're using that as kind of the basis for judging or you know measuring time to a true AI, where you're interacting with this person you can fall in love with, and every you know, and they make you a better person as a result of that interaction. And all the AI, you know a lot of AI researchers are are aimed at that. That's kind of like a catchphrase. Time to her. Oh, okay. <laughs> right? Yeah. Time to her. If time to her, if you get so that, like a, that. It's like a technical readiness. It's like a, instead of time to singularity, yeah. it makes it more real. Time to her. Time to this individual or, you know, human equivalent brain. Time to her seems more tangible. Yeah. It but is. those chatbots are getting really good. And that's, look at Siri and look at the, all the different chatbots that are coming out around that and, and that are even better. Yeah, and Alexa. Voice yeah, they do voice recognition perfectly now. Pretty, I mean, if you get the good stuff and they recognize everything you say and, and we just have to get better or more used to interacting with it. You'll see a lot of people just fall in love with these things. <laughs> they won't even know what hit them. You'll be interacting with people, doing jobs and doing things online and you won't even know that those are chatbots. You ever get caught when you're talking on the, the phone lately? You get, get a call from a robocaller and they have it timed so well that it sounds like you're actually interacting yes. with a person. Yeah. A lot of people think, don't even know that it isn't a person. They go, Oh, hello. And they go, hi, how are you? You know, and you're I, talking to I've them. had one or two of those. Yeah. Yeah. They and really, really time. Well, and it's waiting for you to say something to prompt the next line. Right. And it sounds human. And to, for most people, it probably is. And that that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. That's the kind of thing that can really throw you for a loop where you willingly, the insurgency or the terrorist group finds you. And recruits you, and you don't even know you're being recruited. How often do you publish on Global Gorillas? Uh, not often enough. <laughs> it's just trying to get a lot of ideas into a tiny packet, the things that I'm interested in. But I, you know, I got a couple out this week already. I probably have another one or two for this week. Well, when you're on a streak, you're on a streak. So I'm going to recommend people go there, and we'll bring you back on when the book comes out to have a deeper dive. Okay.
yeah, it'd be very scary, but it'll be good. But it's also <laughs> useful from a marketing perspective. We can have something more tangible rather than wide ranging stuff we're talking we're, about. We're pre-selling the book right now. All right. right. Thanks for being here. Hey, my pleasure. If that interview felt disjointed, none of it was John Robb's fault. I had a list of questions that I was dragging him through, and I wanted answers to those questions. Normally, I try to take people on a journey, and I know where I'm starting and where I'm ending, but the shape of the conversation didn't turn out that way. I'm happy with the way it turned out. I'm just describing it to you because we were all over the place, and that's sort of where we are in thinking about all these different things, and I wanted to touch a bunch of disparate ideas even though it's going to be themed much better when John puts out his next book. You can find him at Global Gorillas, and I will put that link in the show notes for you. I'm Anthony Anarino. You can find me at thesalesblog.com. When you go there, maybe just go to thesalesblog.com forward slash newsletter and sign up for the newsletter. And every Sunday morning, I will be in your inbox when you wake up, giving you ideas that you can put to action on Monday. You can also find me at youtube.com forward slash Anarino. Do subscribe. And it would help me tremendously if you would go out to iTunes and tell the good folks at Apple that you like this podcast by rating it. Give me five stars. That would help a lot. And subscribe. It would be terrific if you would subscribe. That would help me tremendously. Thank you so much for being here. And I will see you next time in the arena. There's no way we're getting out of this podcast without me pitching my new book, The Only Sales Guide You'll Ever Need, being published by Portfolio on October 11th, 2016. Right now, I've done something that no one else has ever done. I've delivered a package of bulk buy bonuses for you that are actual value, that have never been delivered before, and that are going to help you transform your own personal results and the results of your team. And I want to take 30 seconds and tell you what is inside the book. Inside the book is two sections. One section is about mindset. So it's about behaviors and beliefs and attitudes. And the second half of the book is skills. And what this is essentially is a deficiency model. So any area where you might need to improve to succeed in sales is in this book. Maybe it's your discipline. Maybe it's your attitude. Maybe it's your resourcefulness. Maybe you need help closing. Maybe you need help prospecting or developing your business acumen. It's all in there. So right now, go to preorder.theonlysalesguide.com and you're going to be able to download a couple chapters. In one of those chapters, you're going to find the table of contents, which will describe to you all of the attributes and all of the skills you need to succeed in sales now. This book will make you better. This book will help you grow. This book will help you develop into a trusted advisor, a consultative salesperson, and somebody who wins new business. So go check it out, preorder.theonlysalesguide.com. Look for the bonuses and do send me a note and let me know how you like the book. Go pick up the book now. I promise you're going to love it and you're going to be transformed. Audio editing and show notes by podcastfasttrack.com. Get 15% off your first month by mentioning this show.